0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. This is it. (laughs) We've reached the end. Yay! Um, Confession time. I don't really like the Mountains of Madness. But thank you all for listening so much. I really, really appreciate it. I hope you have been enjoying my reading of said work. Um, This is going to be a long one because it's four chapters, and I've been doing this over the past week. I started recording this the night that um, part three published and I'm going to be doing like one chapter a night and I'm going to edit it that night so I'm not doing these marathon recording and editing sessions anymore because that sucked all right thank you all so much for listening I really really appreciate it um and uh let's you and me guys you you and me not you not you you yeah you let's finish this together chapter nine I have said that our study of the decadent sculptures brought about a change in our immediate objective. This, of course, had to do with the chiseled avenues to the black inner world of whose existence we had not known before, but which we were now eager to find and traverse. From the evident scale of the carvings, we deduce that a steeply descending walk of about a mile through either of the neighboring tunnels would bring us to the brink of the dizzy, sunless cliffs about the great abyss, down whose side paths, improved by the old ones, led to the rocky shore of the hidden and nighted ocean. To behold this fabulous gulf in stark reality was a lure which seemed impossible of resistance once we knew of the thing, yet we realized we must begin the quest at once if we expected to include it in our present trip. It was now 8 p.m., and we did not have enough battery replacements to let our torches burn on forever. We had done so much studying and copying below the glacial level that our battery supply had had at least five hours of nearly continuous use, and despite the special dry cell formula, would obviously be good for only about four more. Though by keeping one torch unused, except for especially interesting or difficult places, we might manage to eke out a safe margin beyond that. It would not do to be without light in these Cyclopean catacombs, hence in order to make the abyss trip, we must give up all further mural deciphering. Of course, we intended to revisit the place for days and perhaps weeks of intensive study and photography, curiosity having long ago got the better of horror, but just now we must hasten. Our supply of trailblazing paper was far from unlimited, and we were reluctant to sacrifice spare notebooks or sketching paper to augment it, but we did let one large notebook go. If worst came to worst, we could resort to rock chipping, and of course it would be possible, even in case of really lost direction to work up to full daylight by one channel or another if granted sufficient time for a plentiful trial and error. So at last, we set off eagerly in the indicated direction of the nearest tunnel. According to the carvings from which we had made our map, the desired tunnel mouth could not be much more than a quarter of a mile from where we stood, the intervening space showing solid-looking buildings quite likely to be penetrable still at a subglacial level. The opening itself would be in the basement, on the angle nearest the foothills, of a vast five-pointed structure of evidently public and perhaps ceremonial nature, which we tried to identify from our aerial survey of the ruins. No such structure came to our minds as we recalled our flight, hence we concluded that its upper parts had been greatly damaged, or that it had been totally shattered in an ice rift we had noticed. In the latter case, the tunnel would probably turn out to be choked, so that we would have to try the next nearest one, the one less than a mile to the north. The intervening river course prevented our trying any of the more southern tunnels on this trip, and indeed, if both of the neighboring ones were choked, it was doubtful whether our batteries would warrant an attempt on the next northerly one, about a mile beyond our second choice. As we threaded our dim way through the labyrinth with the aid of map and compass, traversing rooms and corridors in every stage of ruin or preservation, clambering up ramps, crossing upper floors and bridges, and clambering down again, encountering choked doorways and piles of debris, hastening now and then along finely preserved and uncannily immaculate stretches, taking false leads and retracing our way, in such cases removing the blind paper trail we had left, and once in a while striking the bottom of an open shaft through which daylight poured or trickled down, we were repeatedly tantalized by the sculptured walls along our route. Many must have told tales of immense historical importance and only the prospect of later visits reconciled us to the need of passing them by. As it was, we slowed down once in a while and turned on our second torch. If we had had more films, we would certainly have paused briefly to photograph certain bas-reliefs, but time-consuming hand-copying was clearly out of the question. I come now, once more, to a place where the temptation to hesitate, or to hint rather than state, is very strong. It is necessary, however, to reveal the rest in order to justify my course in discouraging further exploration. We had wormed our way very close to the computed site of the tunnel's mouth, having crossed a second-story bridge to what seemed plainly the tip of a pointed wall, and descended to a ruinous corridor, especially rich in decadently elaborate and apparently ritualistic sculptures of late workmanship. When, shortly before 8.30 p.m., Danforth's keen young nostrils gave us the first hint of something unusual. If we had had a dog with us, I suppose we would have been warned before. At first, we could not precisely say what was wrong with the formerly crystal-pure air, but after a few seconds, our memories reacted only too definitely. Let me try to state the thing without flinching. There was an odor, and that odor was vaguely, subtly, and unmistakably akin to what had nauseated us upon opening the insane grave of the horror poor Lake had dissected. Of course, the revelation was not as clearly cut at the time as it sounds now. There were several conceivable explanations, and we did a good deal of indecisive whispering. Most important of all, we did not retreat without further investigation, for having come this far, we were loath to be balked by anything short of certain disaster. Anyway, what we must have suspected was altogether too wild to believe. Such things did not happen in any normal world. It was probably sheer irrational instinct which made us dim our single torch, tempted no longer by the decadent and sinister sculptures that leered menacingly from the oppressive walls, and which softened our progress to a cautious tiptoeing and crawling over the increasingly littered floor and heaps of debris. Danforth's eyes, as well as nose, proved better than mine, for it was likewise he who first noticed the queer aspect of the debris after we had passed many half-choked arches, leading to chambers and corridors on the ground level. It did not look quite as it ought after countless thousands of years of desertion, and when we cautiously turned on more light, we saw that a kind of swath seemed to have been lately tracked through it. The irregular nature of the litter precluded any definite marks, but in the smoother places there were suggestions of the dragging of heavy objects. Once we thought there was a hint of parallel tracks as if of runners, this was what made us pause again. It was during that pause that we caught, simultaneously this time, the other odor ahead. Paradoxically, it was both a less frightful and more frightful odor. Less frightful intrinsically, but infinitely appalling in this place under the known circumstances. Unless, of course, Gedney. For the odor was the plain and familiar one of common petrol every day gasoline. Our motivation after that is something I will leave to psychologists. We knew now that some terrible extension of the camp horrors must have crawled into this nighted burial place of the aeons, hence could not doubt any longer the existence of nameless conditions, present or at least recent, just ahead. Yet in the end we did let sheer burning curiosity, or anxiety, or auto-hypnotism, or vague thoughts of responsibility toward Gedney or what-not drive us on. Danforth whispered again of the print he thought he had seen at the alley-turning in the ruins above, and of the faint musical piping, potentially of tremendous significance in the light of Lake's dissection report, despite its close resemblance to the cave-mouth echoes of the windy peaks, which he thought he had shortly afterward half-heard from unknown depths below. I, in my turn, whispered of how the camp was left, Of what had disappeared and of how the madness of a lone survivor might have conceived the inconceivable a wild trip across the monstrous mountains and a descent into the unknown primal masonry but we could not convince each other or even ourselves of anything definite we had turned off all light as we stood still and vaguely noticed that a trace of deeply filtered upper day kept the blackness from being absolute having automatically begun to move ahead We guided ourselves by occasional flashes from our torch. The disturbed debris formed an impression we could not shake off, and the smell of gasoline grew stronger. More and more ruin met our eyes and hampered our feet, until very soon we saw that the forward way was about to cease. We had been all too correct in our pessimistic guess about that rift glimpsed from the air. Our tunnel quest was a blind one, and we were not even going to be able to reach the basement out of which the abyssward aperture opened. The torch, flashing over the grotesquely carved walls of the blocked corridor in which we stood, showed several doorways in various states of obstruction, and from one of them the gasoline odor, quite submerging that other hint of odor, came with a special distinctness. As we looked more steadily, we saw that beyond a doubt there had been a slight and recent clearing away of debris from that particular opening. Whatever the lurking horror might be, we believed the direct avenue toward it was now plainly manifest. I do not think anyone will wonder that we waited an appreciable time before making any further motion. And yet, when we did venture inside that black arch, our first impression was one of anticlimax. for amidst the littered expanse of that sculptured crypt, a perfect cube with sides of about twenty feet, there remained no recent object of instantly discernible size, so that we looked instinctively, though in vain, for a farther doorway. In another moment, however, "'Danforth's sharp vision had descried a place where the floor debris had been disturbed, "'and we turned on both torches full strength. "'Though what we saw in that light was actually simple and trifling, "'I am, nonetheless, reluctant to tell of it because of what it implied. "'It was a rough leveling of the debris upon which several small objects lay carelessly scattered, "'and at one corner of which a considerable amount of gasoline must have been spilled lately enough to leave a strong odor.' even at this extreme super-plateau altitude. In other words, it could not be other than a sort of camp, a camp made by questing beings who, like us, had been turned back by the unexpectedly choked way to the abyss. Let me be plain. The scattered objects were, so far as substance was concerned, all from Lake's camp, and consisted of tin cans as queerly opened as those we had seen at that ravaged place, Many spent matches, three illustrated books more or less curiously smudged, an empty ink bottle with its pictorial and instructional carton, a broken fountain pen, some oddly snipped fragments of fur and tent cloth, a used electric battery with circular of directions, a folder that came with our type of tent heater, and a sprinkling of crumpled papers. It was all bad enough, but when we smoothed out the papers and looked at what was on them, we felt we had come to the worst. We had found certain inexplicably blotted papers at the camp which might have prepared us, yet the effect of the sight down there in the pre-human vaults of a nightmare city was almost too much to bear. A mad Gedney might have made the groups of dots in imitation of those found on the greenish soapstones, just as the dots on those insane five-pointed grave mounds might have been made, and he might conceivably have prepared rough, hasty sketches, Varying in their accuracy, or lack of it, which outlined the neighboring parts of the city, and traced the way from a circularly represented place outside our previous route, a place we identified as a great cylindrical tower in the carvings, and as a vast circular gulf glimpsed in our aerial survey, to the present five-pointed structure and the tunnel-mouth therein. He might, I repeat, have prepared such sketches, for those before us were quite obviously compiled, as our own had been, from late sculptures somewhere in the glacial labyrinth, though not from the ones which we had seen and used. But what the art-blind bungler could never have done was to execute those sketches in a strange and assured technique, perhaps superior, despite haste and carelessness, to any of the decadent carvings from which they were taken, the characteristic and unmistakable technique of the old ones themselves in the Dead City's heyday. There are those... Who will say that danforth and i were utterly mad not to flee for our lives after that since our conclusions were now notwithstanding their wildness completely fixed and of a nature i need not even mention to those who have read my account as far as this perhaps we were mad for have i not said those horrible peaks were mountains of madness but i think i can detect something of the same spirit albeit in a less extreme form, in the men who stalked deadly beasts through African jungles to photograph them or study their habits. Half paralyzed with terror though we were, there was nevertheless fanned within us a blazing flame of awe and curiosity which triumphed in the end. Of course, we did not mean to face that or those which we knew had been there, but we felt that they must be gone by now. They would by this time have found the other neighboring entrance to the abyss and have passed within to whatever night-black fragments of the past might await them in the ultimate gulf. The ultimate gulf they had never seen. Or if that entrance, too, was blocked, they would have gone on to the north, seeking another. They were, we remembered, partly independent of light. Looking back to that moment, I can scarcely recall just what precise form our new emotions took. Just what change of immediate objective it was that so sharpened our sense of expectancy. We certainly did not mean to face what we feared. Yet I will not deny that we may have had a lurking, unconscious wish to spy certain things from some hidden vantage point. Probably we had not given up our zeal to glimpse the abyss itself, though there was interposed a new goal in the form of that great circular place shown on the crumpled sketches we had found. We had at once recognized it as a monstrous cylindrical tower, Figuring in the very earliest carvings, but appearing only as a prodigious round aperture from above. Something about the impressiveness of its rendering, even in these hasty diagrams, made us think that its subglacial levels must still form a feature of peculiar importance. Perhaps it embodied architectural marvels as yet unencountered by us. It was certainly of incredible age, according to the sculptures in which it figured, being indeed among the first things built in the city. Its carvings, if preserved, could not but be highly significant. Moreover, it might form a good present link with the upper world, a shorter route than the one we were so carefully blazing, and probably that by which those others had descended. At any rate, the thing we did was to study the terrible sketches, which quite perfectly confirmed our own, and start back over the indicated course to the circular place, the course which our nameless predecessors must have traversed twice before us. The other neighboring gate to the abyss would lie beyond that. I need not speak of our journey, during which we continued to leave an economical trail of paper, for it was precisely the same in kind as that by which we had reached the cul-de-sac, except that it tended to adhere more closely to the ground level and even descend to basement corridors. Every now and then we could trace certain disturbing marks in the debris or litter underfoot, and after we had passed outside the radius of the gasoline scent, we were again faintly conscious, spasmodically, of that more hideous and more persistent scent. After the way had branched from our former course, we sometimes gave the rays of our single torch a furtive sweep along the walls, noting in almost every case the well-nigh omnipresent sculptures which, indeed, seemed to have formed a main aesthetic outlet for the old ones. About 9.30 p.m., while traversing a long vaulted corridor whose increasingly glaciated floor seemed somewhat below the ground level, and whose roof grew lower as we advanced, we began to see strong daylight ahead and were able to turn off our torch. It appeared that we were coming to the vast circular place and that our distance from the upper air could not be very great. The corridor ended in an arch surprisingly low for these megalithic ruins, but we could see much through it even before we emerged. Beyond there stretched a prodigious round space, fully two hundred feet in diameter, strewn with debris and containing many choked archways corresponding to the one we were about to cross. The walls were, in available spaces, boldly sculptured into a spiral band of heroic proportions, and displayed, despite the destructive weathering caused by the openness of the spot, an artistic splendor far beyond anything we had encountered before. The littered floor was quite heavily glaciated, and we fancied that the true bottom lay at a considerably lower depth. But the salient object of the place was the titanic stone ramp, which, eluding the archways by a sharp turn outward into the open floor, wound spirally up the stupendous cylindrical wall like an inside counterpart of those once climbing outside the monstrous towers or ziggurats of antique Babylon. Only the rapidity of our flight and the perspective which confounded the descent with the tower's inner wall had prevented our noticing this feature from the air and thus caused us to seek another avenue to the subglacial level. Pobody might have been able to tell what sort of engineering held it in place, but Danforth and I could merely admire and marvel. We could see mighty stone corbels and pillars here and there, but what we saw seemed inadequate to the function performed. The thing was excellently preserved up to the present top of the tower, a highly remarkable circumstance in view of its exposure, and its shelter had done much to protect the bizarre and disturbing cosmic sculptures on the walls. As we stepped out into the awesome half-daylight of this monstrous cylinder bottom, fifty million years old and without doubt the most primally ancient structure ever to meet our eyes, we saw that the ramp traversed sides, stretched dizzily up to a height of fully sixty feet. This, we recalled from our aerial survey, meant an outside glaciation of some forty feet, since the yawning gulf we had seen from the plain had been at the top of an approximately twenty-foot mound of crumbled masonry somewhat sheltered for three-fourths of its circumference by the massive curving walls of a line of higher ruins. According to the sculptures, the original tower had stood in the center of an immense circular plaza and had been perhaps 500 or 600 feet high, with tiers of horizontal discs near the top and a row of needle-like spires along the upper rim. Most of the masonry had obviously toppled outward rather than inward, A fortunate happening, since otherwise the ramp might have been shattered and the whole interior choked. As it was, the ramp showed sad battering, whilst the choking was such that all the archways at the bottom seemed to have been recently cleared. It took us only a moment to conclude that this was indeed the route by which those others had descended, and that this would be the logical route for our own ascent, despite the long trail of paper we had left elsewhere. The tower's mouth was no farther from the foothills in our waiting plain than was the great terraced building we had entered, and any further subglacial exploration we might make on this trip would lie in this general region. Oddly, we were still thinking about possible later trips, even after all we had seen and guessed. Then, as we picked our way cautiously over the debris of the great floor, there came a sight which, for the time, excluded all other matters. It was the neatly huddled array of three sledges in that farther angle of the ramp's lower and outward-projecting course which had hitherto been screened from our view. There they were, the three sledges missing from Lake's camp, shaken by a hard usage which must have included forcible dragging along great reaches of snowless masonry and debris, as well as much hand portage over utterly unnavigable places. They were carefully and intelligently packed and strapped, and contained things memorably familiar enough. The gasoline stove, fuel cans, instrument cases, provision tins, tarpaulins, obviously bulging with books, and some bulging with less obvious contents. Everything derived from Lake's equipment. After what we had found in that other room, we were in a measure prepared for this encounter. The really great shock came when we stepped over and undid one tarpaulin whose outlines had peculiarly disquieted us. It seems that Others, as well as Lake, had been interested in collecting typical specimens, for there were two here, both stiffly frozen, perfectly preserved, patched with adhesive plaster where some wounds around the neck had occurred and wrapped with care to prevent further damage. They were the bodies of young Gedney and the missing dog. Chapter 10 Many people will probably judge us callous as well as mad for thinking about the northward tunnel and the abyss so soon after our somber discovery, and I am not prepared to say that we would have immediately revived such thoughts but for a specific circumstance which broke in upon us and set up a whole new train of speculations. We had replaced the tarpaulin over Porgedney and were standing in a kind of mute bewilderment when the sounds finally reached our consciousness the first sounds we had heard since descending out of the open where the mountain wind whined faintly from its unearthly heights. Well known and mundane though they were, their presence in this remote world of death was more unexpected and unnerving than any grotesque or fabulous tones could possibly have been, since they gave us a fresh upsetting to all our notions of cosmic harmony. Had it been some trace of that Bizarre musical piping over a wide range which Lake's dissection report had led us to expect in those others, and which indeed our overwrought fancies had been reading into every wind-howl we had heard since coming on the camp horror, it would have had a kind of hellish congruity with the Aeon-Dead region around us. A voice from other epochs belongs in a graveyard of other epochs. As it was, however, the noise shattered all our profoundly seated adjustments, all our tacit acceptance of the inner Antarctic as a waste utterly and irrevocably void of every vestige of normal life. What we heard was not the fabulous note of any buried blasphemy of Elder Earth from whose supernal toughness and age-denied polar sun had evoked a monstrous response. Instead, it was a thing so mockingly normal, and so unerringly familiarized by our sea days off Victoria Land and our camp days at McMurdo Sound, that we shuddered to think of it here, where such things ought not to be. To be brief, it was simply the raucous squawking of a penguin. The muffled sound floated from subglacial recesses nearly opposite to the corridor whence we had come, regions manifestly in the direction of that other tunnel to the vast abyss. The presence of a living water bird in such a direction, in a world whose surface was one of age-long and uniform lifelessness, could lead to only one conclusion. Hence our first thought was to verify the objective reality of the sound. It was, indeed, repeated, and seemed at times to come from more than one throat. Seeking its source, we entered an archway from which much debris had been cleared, resuming our trailblazing with an added paper supply taken with curious repugnance from one of the tarpaulin bundles on the sledges when we left daylight behind. As the glaciated floor gave place to a litter of detritus, we plainly discerned some curious dragging tracks, and once Danforth found a distinct print of a sort whose description would be only too superfluous. The course indicated by the penguin cries was precisely what our map and compass prescribed as an approach to the more northerly tunnel mouth, and we were glad to find that a bridgeless thoroughfare on the ground and basement levels seemed open. The tunnel, according to the chart, ought to start from the basement of a large pyramidal structure which we seemed vaguely to recall from our aerial survey as remarkably well-preserved. Along our path, the single torch showed a customary profusion of carvings, but we did not pause to examine any of these. Suddenly, a bulky white shape loomed up ahead of us, and we flashed on the second torch. It is odd how wholly this new quest had turned our minds from earlier fears of what might lurk near. Those other ones, having left their supplies in the great circular place, must have planned to return after their scouting trip toward or into the abyss. Yet we had now discarded all caution concerning them as completely as if they had never existed. This white, waddling thing was fully six feet high, yet we seemed to realize at once that it was not one of those others. They were larger and dark, and according to the sculptures, their motion over land surfaces was a swift, assured matter, despite the queerness of their seaborne tentacle equipment. But to say that the white thing did not profoundly frighten us would be vain. We were, indeed, clutched for an instant by primitive dread almost sharper than the worst of our reasoned fears regarding those others. Then came a flash of anticlimax as the white shape sidled onto a lateral archway to our left to join two others of its kind which had summoned it in raucous tones, for it was only a penguin, albeit of a huge unknown species larger than the greatest of the known king-penguins, and monstrous in its combined albinism and virtual eyelessness. When we had followed the thing into the archway and turned both our torches on the indifferent and unheeding group of three, we saw that they were all eyeless albinos of the same unknown and gigantic species, Their size reminded us of some of the archaic penguins depicted in the old one's sculptures, and it did not take us long to conclude that they were descended from the same stock, undoubtedly surviving through a retreat to some warmer inner region whose perpetual blackness had destroyed their pigmentation and atrophied their eyes to mere useless slits. That their present habitat was the vast abyss we sought was not for a moment to be doubted, and this evidence of the gulf's continued warmth and habitability filled us with the most curious and subtly perturbing fancies. We wondered, too, what had caused these three birds to venture out of their usual domain. The state and silence of the great dead city made it clear that it had at no time been an habitual seasonal rookery, whilst the manifest indifference of the trio to our presence made it seem odd that any passing party of those others should have startled them. Was it possible that those others had taken some aggressive action or tried to increase their meat supply. We doubted whether that pungent odor which the dogs had hated could cause an equal antipathy in these penguins, since their ancestors had obviously lived on excellent terms with the old ones, an amicable relationship which must have survived in the abyss below as long as any of the old ones remained. Regretting, in a flare-up of the old spirit of pure science, that we could not photograph these anomalous creatures, we shortly left them to their squawking and pushed on toward the abyss, whose openness was now so positively proved to us, and whose exact direction occasional penguin tracks made clear. Not long afterward, a steep descent in a long, low, doorless, and peculiarly sculptureless corridor led us to believe that we were approaching the tunnel mouth at last. We had passed two more penguins, and heard others immediately ahead. Then the corridor ended in a prodigious open space which made us gasp involuntarily. A perfect, inverted hemisphere, obviously deep underground, fully a hundred feet in diameter and fifty feet high, with low archways opening all around parts of the circumference but one, and that one yawning cavernously with a black arched aperture which broke the symmetry of the vault to a height of nearly fifteen feet. It was the entrance to the great abyss. In this vast hemisphere, whose concave roof was impressively, though decadently carved to a likeness of the primordial celestial dome, a few albino penguins waddled, aliens there, but indifferent and unseeing. The black tunnel yawned indefinitely off at a steep descending grade, its aperture adorned with grotesquely chiseled jams and lintel. From that cryptical mouth we fancied a current of slightly warmer air, and perhaps even a suspicion of vapor proceeded, and we wondered what living entities other than penguins the limitless void below and the contiguous honeycombings of the land and the titan mountains might conceal. We wondered, too, whether the trace of mountaintop smoke, at first suspected by poor lake, as well as the odd haze we had ourselves perceived around the rampart-crowned peak, might not be caused by the tortuous, channeled rising of some such vapor from the unfathomed regions of Earth's core. Entering the tunnel, we saw that its outline was, at least at the start, about fifteen feet each way, Sides, floor, and arched roof composed of the usual megalithic masonry. The sides were sparsely decorated with cartouches of conventional designs in a late, decadent style, and all the construction and carving were marvelously well-preserved. The floor was quite clear, except for a slight detritus bearing outgoing penguin tracks, and the inward tracks of these others. The farther one advanced, the warmer it became, so that we were soon unbuttoning our heavy garments. We wondered whether there were any actually igneous manifestations below, and whether the waters of that sunless sea were hot. After a short distance, the masonry gave place to solid rock, though the tunnel kept the same proportions and presented the same aspect of carved regularity. Occasionally, its varying grade became so steep that grooves were cut in the floor. Several times, we noted the mouths of small lateral galleries not recorded in our diagrams none of them such as to complicate the problem of our return, and all of them welcome as possible refuges in case we met unwelcome entities on their way back from the abyss. The nameless scent of such things was very distinct. Doubtless it was suicidally foolish to venture into that tunnel under the known conditions, but the lure of the unplumbed is stronger in certain persons than most suspect. Indeed, it was just such a lure which had brought us to this unearthly polar waste in the first place. We saw several penguins as we passed along and speculated on the distance we would have to traverse. The carvings had led us to expect a steep downhill walk of about a mile to the abyss, but our previous wanderings had shown us that matters of scale were not wholly to be depended on. After about a quarter of a mile, that nameless scent became greatly accentuated, and we kept very careful track of the various lateral openings we passed. There was no visible vapor as at the mouth, But this was doubtless due to the lack of contrasting cooler air. The temperature was rapidly ascending, and we were not surprised to come upon a careless heap of material shudderingly familiar to us. It was composed of furs and tent cloth taken from Lake's camp, and we did not pause to study the bizarre forms into which the fabrics had been slashed. Slightly beyond this point we noticed a decided increase in the size and number of the side galleries, and concluded that the densely honeycombed region beneath the higher foothills must now have been reached. The nameless scent was now curiously mixed with another and scarcely less offensive odor, of what nature we could not guess though we thought of decaying organisms and perhaps unknown subterranean fungi. Then came a startling expansion of the tunnel for which the carvings had not prepared us, a broadening and rising into a lofty natural-looking elliptical cavern with a level floor, some seventy-five feet long and fifty broad, and with many immense side passages leading away into cryptical darkness. Though this cavern was natural in appearance, an inspection with both torches suggested that it had been formed by the artificial destruction of several walls between adjacent honeycombs. The walls were rough, and the high-vaulted roof was thick with stalactites, but the solid rock floor had been smoothed off and was free from all debris, detritus, or even dust to a positively abnormal extent. Except for the avenue through which we had come, this was true of the floors of all the great galleries opening off from it, and the singularity of the condition was such as to set us vainly puzzling. The curious new fetter which had supplemented the nameless scent was excessively pungent here, so much so that it destroyed all trace of the other. Something about this whole place, with its polished and almost glistening floor, struck us as more vaguely baffling and horrible than any of the monstrous things we had previously encountered. The regularity of the passage immediately ahead, as well as the larger proportion of penguin droppings there, prevented all confusion as to the right course amidst this plethora of equally great cave-mouths. Nevertheless, we resolved to resume our paper trailblazing if any further complexity should develop, for dust-tracks, of course, could no longer be expected. Upon resuming our direct progress, we cast a beam of torchlight over the tunnel walls, and stopped short in amazement at the supremely radical change which had come over the carvings in this part of the passage. We realized, of course, the great decadence of the old one's sculpture at the time of the tunneling, and had indeed noticed the inferior workmanship of the arabesques in the stretches behind us. But now, in this deeper section beyond the cavern, there was a sudden difference wholly transcending explanation, a difference in basic nature as well as in mere quality, and involving so profound and calamitous a degradation of skill that nothing in the hitherto observed rate of decline could have led one to expect it. This new and degenerate work was coarse, bold, and wholly lacking in delicacy of detail. It was countersunk with exaggerated depth in bands following the same general line as the sparse cartouches of the earlier sections, but the height of the reliefs did not reach the level of the general surface. Danforth had the idea that it was a second carving, a sort of palimpsest formed after the obliteration of a previous design. In nature it was wholly decorative and conventional and consisted of crude spirals and angles roughly following the quintile mathematical tradition of the old ones, yet seemingly more like a parody than a perpetuation of that tradition. We could not get it out of our minds that some subtle but profoundly alien element had been added to the aesthetic feeling behind the technique an alien element, Danforth guessed, that was responsible for the laborious substitution. It was like, yet disturbingly unlike, what we had come to recognize as the old one's art, and I was persistently reminded of such hybrid things as the ungainly palmarine sculptures fashioned in the Roman manner. That others had recently noticed this belt of carving was hinted by the presence of a used flashlight battery on the floor in front of one of the most characteristic cartouches. Since we could not afford to spend any considerable time in study, we resumed our advance after a cursory look, though frequently casting beams over the walls to see if any further decorative changes developed. Nothing of the sort was perceived, though the carvings were in places rather sparse because of the numerous mouths of smooth-floored lateral tunnels. We saw and heard fewer penguins, but thought we caught a vague suspicion of an infinitely distant chorus of them somewhere deep within the earth. The new and inexplicable odor was abominably strong, and we could detect scarcely a sign of that other nameless scent. Puffs of visible vapor ahead bespoke increasing contrasts in temperature and the relative nearness of the sunless sea cliffs of the great abyss. Then, quite unexpectedly, we saw certain obstructions on the polished floor ahead, obstructions which were quite definitely not penguins, and turned on our second torch after making sure that the objects were quite stationary. Chapter 11. Still another time have I come to a place where it is very difficult to proceed. I ought to be hardened by this stage, but there are some experiences and intimations which scar too deeply to permit of healing, and leave only such an added sensitiveness that memory re-inspires all the original horror. We saw, as I have said, certain obstructions on the polished floor ahead, and I may add that our nostrils were assailed almost simultaneously by a very curious intensification of the strange prevailing fetter, now quite plainly mixed with the nameless stench of those others which had gone before. The light of the second torch left no doubt of what the obstructions were, and we dared approach them only because we could see, even from a distance, that they were quite as past all harming power as had been the six similar specimens unearthed from the monstrous star-mounded graves at Poor Lake's camp. They were, indeed, as lacking in completeness as most of those we had unearthed, though it grew plain from the thick dark green pool gathering around them, that their incompleteness was of infinitely greater recency. There seemed to be only four of them, whereas Lake's bulletins would have suggested no less than eight as forming the group which had preceded us. To find them in this state was wholly unexpected, and we wondered what sort of monstrous struggle had occurred down here in the dark. Penguins, attacked in a body, retaliate savagely with their beaks, and our ears now made certain the existence of a rookery far beyond. Had those others disturbed such a place and aroused murderous pursuit? The obstructions did not suggest it, for Penguin's beaks against the tough tissues Lake had dissected could hardly account for the terrible damage our approaching glance was beginning to make out. Besides, the huge blind birds we had seen appeared to be singularly peaceful. Had there then been a struggle among those others, and were the absent four responsible? If so, where were they? Were they close at hand and likely to form an immediate menace to us? We glanced anxiously at some of the smooth-floored lateral passages as we continued our slow and frankly reluctant approach. Whatever the conflict was, it had clearly been that which had frightened the penguins into their unaccustomed wandering. It must, then, have arisen near that faintly heard rookery in the incalculable gulf beyond, since there were no signs that any birds had normally dwelt here. Perhaps, we reflected, there had been a hideous running fight with the weaker party seeking to get back to the cached sledges when their pursuers finished them. One could picture the demoniac fray between namelessly monstrous entities as it surged out of the black abyss, with great clouds of frantic penguins squawking and scurrying ahead. I say that we approached those sprawling and incomplete obstructions slowly and reluctantly, Would to heaven we had never approached them at all, but had run back at top speed out of that blasphemous tunnel, with the greasily smooth floors and the degenerate murals aping and mocking the things they had superseded, run back before we had seen what we did see, and before our minds were burned with something which will never let us breathe easily again. Both of our torches were turned on the prostrate objects, so that we soon realized the dominant factor in their incompleteness. Mauled, compressed, twisted, and ruptured as they were, their chief common injury was total decapitation. From each one the tentacled starfish head had been removed, and as we drew near, we saw that the manner of removal looked more like some hellish tearing or suction than like any ordinary form of cleavage. Their noisome dark green ichor formed a large spreading pool, but its stench was half overshadowed by the newer and stranger stench, here more pungent than at any other point along our route. Only when we had come very close to the sprawling obstructions could we trace that second unexplainable fetter to any immediate source. And the instant we did so, Danforth, remembering certain very vivid sculptures of the Old One's history in the Permian Age one hundred and fifty million years ago, gave vent to a nerve-tortured cry which echoed hysterically through that vaulted and archaic passage with the evil palimpsest carvings. I came only just short of echoing his cry myself, for I had seen those primal sculptures too, and had shudderingly admired the way the nameless artist had suggested that hideous slime coating found on certain incomplete and prostrate old ones, those whom the frightful Shoggoths had characteristically slain and sucked to a ghastly headlessness in the great war of resubjugation. They were infamous nightmare sculptures, even when telling of age, old bygone things, for Shoggoths and their work ought not to be seen by human beings or portrayed by any beings. The mad author of the Necronomicon had nervously tried to swear that none had been bred on this planet and that only drugged dreamers had even conceived them. Formless protoplasm, able to mock and reflect all forms and organs and processes, viscous agglutinations of bubbling cells, rubbery 15-foot spheroids infinitely plastic and ductile, "'slave of suggestions, builders of cities, "'more and more sullen, more and more intelligent, "'more and more amphibious, more and more imitative. "'Great God, what madness made even those blasphemous old ones "'willing to use and carve such things? "'And now, when Danforth and I saw the freshly glistening "'and reflectively iridescent black slime "'which clung thickly to those headless bodies,' and stank obscenely with that new, unknown odor whose cause only a diseased fancy could envision, clung to those bodies and sparkled less voluminously on a smooth part of the accursedly resculptured wall in a series of grouped dots, we understood the quality of cosmic fear to its uttermost depths. It was not fear of those four missing others, for all too well did we suspect they would do no harm again. Poor devils. After all, they were not evil things of their kind. They were the men of another age and another order of being. Nature had played a hellish jest on them as it will on any others that human madness, callousness, or cruelty may hereafter dig up in that hideously dead or sleeping polar waste. And this was their tragic homecoming. They had not even been savages. For what indeed had they done? That awful awakening in the cold of an unknown epoch Perhaps an attack by the furry, frantically barking quadrupeds, and a dazed defense against them and the equally frantic white simians with the queer wrappings and paraphernalia. Poor Lake, poor Gedney, and poor old ones. Scientists to the last. What had they done that we would not have done in their place? God, what intelligence and persistence. What effacing of the incredible just as those carven kinsmen and forebears had faced things only a little less incredible. Radiates, vegetables, monstrosities, spawn, whatever they had been, they were men. They had crossed the icy peaks on whose templed slopes they had once worshipped and roamed among the tree ferns. They had found their dead city brooding under its curse and had read its carven latter days as we had done. They had tried to reach their living fellows in fabled depths of blackness they had never seen, and what had they found? All this flashed in unison through the thoughts of Danforth and me as we looked from those headless, slime-coated shapes to the loathsome palimpsest sculptures and the diabolical dot groups of fresh slime on the wall behind them, looked and understood what must have triumphed and survived down there in the cyclopean water city of that knighted, penguin-fringed abyss, whence even now a sinister curling mist had begun to belch pallidly as if in answer to Danforth's hysterical scream. The shock of recognizing that monstrous slime and headlessness had frozen us into mute, motionless statues, and it is only through later conversations that we have learned of the complete identity of our thoughts at that moment. It seemed aeons that we stood there, but actually it could not have been more than ten or fifteen seconds. That hateful, pallid mist curled forward as if veritably driven by some remoter advancing bulk, and then came a sound which upset much of what we had just decided, and in so doing broke the spell, and enabled us to run like mad past squawking, confused penguins over our former trail back to the city, along ice-sunken megalithic corridors to the great open circle, and up that archaic spiral ramp in a frenzied automatic plunge for the sane outer air and light of day. The new sound, as I have intimated, upset much that we had decided, because it was what poor Lake's dissection had led us to attribute to those we had judged dead. It was, Danforth later told me, precisely what he had caught in infinitely muffled form when at that spot beyond the alley corner above the glacial level, and it certainly had a shocking resemblance to the wind pipings we had both heard around the lofty mountain caves. At the risk of seeming puerile, I will add another thing, too if only because of the surprising way Danforth's impressions chimed with mine. Of course, common reading is what prepared us both to make the interpretation, though Danforth has hinted at queer notions about unsuspected and forbidden sources to which Poe may have had access when writing his Arthur Gordon Pym a century ago. It will be remembered that in that fantastic tale, there is a word of unknown but terrible and prodigious significance connected with the Antarctic and screamed eternally by the gigantic, spectrally snowy birds of that malign region's core, Tacali lee, Tacali lee. That, I may admit, is exactly what we thought we heard conveyed by that sudden sound behind the advancing white mist, that insidious, musical piping over a singularly wide range. We were in full flight before three notes or syllables had been uttered. "'though we knew that the swiftness of the Old Ones "'would enable any scream-roused and pursuing survivor of the slaughter "'to overtake us in a moment if it really wished to do so. "'We had a vague hope, however, that non-aggressive conduct "'and a display of kindred reason might cause such a being to spare us "'in case of capture, if only from scientific curiosity. "'After all, if such a One had nothing to fear for itself, "'it would have no motive in harming us. "'Concealment being futile at this juncture,' We used our torch for a running glance behind, and perceived that the mist was thinning. Would we see, at last, a complete and living specimen of those others? Again came that insidious musical piping. teck lee 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 Then, noting that we were actually gaining on our pursuer, it occurred to us that the entity might be wounded. We could take no chances, however, since it was very obviously approaching in answer to Danforth's scream, rather than in flight from any other entity. The timing was too close to admit of doubt. Of the whereabouts of that less conceivable and less mentionable nightmare, that fetid, unglimpsed mountain of slime-spewing protoplasm whose race had conquered the abyss and sent land pioneers to re-carve and squirm through the burrows of the hills, we could form no guess, and it cost us a genuine pang to leave this probably crippled old one, perhaps a lone survivor, to the peril of recapture and a nameless fate. Thank heaven we did not slacken our run. The curling mist had thickened again and was driving ahead with increased speed, whilst the straying penguins in our rear were squawking and screaming and displaying signs of a panic really surprising in view of their relatively minor confusion when we had passed them. Once more came that sinister, wide-ranged piping, taka lee lee We had been wrong, The thing was not wounded, but had merely paused on encountering the bodies of its fallen kindred and the hellish slime inscription above them. We could never know what that demon message was, but those burials at Lake's camp had shown how much importance the beings attached to their dead. Our recklessly used torch now revealed ahead of us the large open cavern where various ways converged, and we were glad to be leaving those morbid, palimpsest sculptures, almost felt even when scarcely seen, behind. Another thought, which the advent of the cave inspired, was the possibility of losing our pursuer at this bewildering focus of large galleries. There were several of the blind albino penguins in the open space, and it seemed clear that their fear of the oncoming entity was extreme to the point of unaccountability. If at that point we dimmed our torch to the very lowest limit of travelling need, keeping it strictly in front of us, the frightened squawking motions of the huge birds in the mist might muffle our footfalls screen our true course, and somehow set up a false lead. Amidst the churning, spiraling fog, the littered and unglistening floor of the main tunnel beyond this point, as differing from the other morbidly polished burrows, could hardly form a highly distinguishing feature, even, so far as we could conjecture, for those indicated special senses which made the old ones partly, though imperfectly, independent of light in emergencies. In fact, we were somewhat apprehensive lest we go astray ourselves in our haste, for we had, of course, decided to keep straight on toward the dead city, since the consequence of loss in those unknown foothill honeycombings would be unthinkable. The fact that we survived and emerged is sufficient proof that the thing did take a wrong gallery whilst we providentially hit on the right one. The penguins alone could not have saved us, but in conjunction with the mist they seemed to have done so. Only a benign fate kept the curling vapors thick enough at the right moment, for they were constantly shifting and threatening to vanish indeed they did lift for a second just before we emerged from the nauseously re-sculptured tunnel into the cave so that we actually caught one so that we actually caught one first and only half glimpse of the oncoming entity as we cast a final desperately fearful glance backward before dimming the torch and mixing with the penguins in the hope of dodging pursuit if the fate which screened us was benign that which gave us the half-glimpse was infinitely the opposite, for to that flash of semi-vision can be traced a full half of the horror which has ever since haunted us. Our exact motive in looking back again was perhaps no more than the immemorial instinct of the pursued to gauge the nature and course of its pursuer, or perhaps it was an automatic attempt to answer a subconscious question raised by one of our senses. In the midst of our flight, With all our faculties centered on the problem of escape, we were in no condition to observe and analyze details, yet even so, our latent brain cells must have wondered at the message brought them by our nostrils. Afterward, we realized what it was, that our retreat from the fetid slime coating on those headless obstructions and the coincident approach of the pursuing entity had not brought us the exchange of stenches which logic called for. In the neighborhood of the new prostrate things, that new and lately unexplainable fetter had been wholly dominant, but by this time it ought to have largely given place to the nameless stench associated with those others. This it had not done, for instead, the newer and less bearable smell was now virtually undiluted, and growing more and more poisonously insistent each second. So we glanced back simultaneously, it would appear though no doubt the incipient motion of one prompted the imitation of the other. As we did so, we flashed both torches full strength at the momentarily thinned mist, either from sheer primitive anxiety to see all we could, or in a less primitive but equally unconscious effort to dazzle the entity before we dimmed our light and dodged among the penguins of the labyrinth center ahead. Unhappy act. Not Orpheus himself or Lot's wife paid much more dearly for a backward glance. And again came that shocking, wide-ranged piping, "Tekali lee, lee." I might as well be frank, even if I cannot bear to be quite direct in stating what we saw. Though at the time we felt that it was not to be admitted even to each other, the words reaching the reader can never even suggest the awfulness of the sight itself. It crippled our consciousness so completely that. I wonder we had the residual sense to dim our torches as planned and to strike the right tunnel toward the dead city. Instinct alone must have carried us through. Perhaps better than reason could have done, though if that was what saved us, we paid a high price. Of reason, we certainly had little enough left. Danforth was totally unstrung, and the first thing I remember of the rest of the journey was hearing him light-headedly chant an hysterical formula in which I alone of mankind could have found anything but insane irrelevance. It reverberated in falsetto echoes among the squawks of the penguins, reverberated through the vaultings ahead and, thank God, through the now empty vaultings behind. He could not have begun it at once, else we would not have been alive and blindly racing. I shudder to think of what a shade of difference in his nervous reactions might have brought. South Station under Washington Park, Park Street under Kendall, Central Harvard, The poor fellow was chanting the familiar stations of the Boston-Cambridge tunnel that burrowed through our peaceful native soil, thousands of miles away in New England. Yet to me the ritual had neither irrelevance nor home feeling. It had only horror, because I knew unerringly the monstrous nefandous analogy that had suggested it. We had expected, upon looking back, to see a terrible and incredible moving entity if the mists were thin enough, but of that entity we had formed a clear idea— What we did see, for the mists were indeed all too malignly thinned, was something altogether different, and immeasurably more hideous and detestable. It was the utter, objective embodiment of the fantastic novelist's thing that should not be, and its nearest comprehensible analogue is a vast, onrushing subway train as one sees it from a station platform, the great black front looming colossally out of infinite subterranean distance, constellated with strangely colored lights and filling the prodigious burrow as a piston fills a cylinder. But we were not on a station platform. We were on the track ahead as the nightmare plastic column of fetid black iridescence oozed tightly onward through its fifteen-foot sinus, gathering unholy speed and driving before it a spiral, rethickening cloud of the pallid abyss vapor. It was a terrible, indescribable thing, vaster than any subway train, a shapeless conjuries of protoplasmic bubbles, faintly self-luminous, and with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel-filling front that bore down upon us, crushing the frantic penguins and slithering over the glistening floor that it and its kind had swept so evilly free of all litter. Still came that eldritch mocking cry, Takalili! Takalili! And at last we remembered that the demoniac shogoths, given life, Thought and plastic organ patterns solely by the old ones, and having no language save that which the dot groups expressed, had likewise no voice save the imitated accents of their bygone masters. Chapter 12 Danforth and I have recollections of emerging into the great sculptured hemisphere and of threading our back trail through the cyclopean rooms and corridors of the dead city. Yet these are purely dream fragments, involving no memory of volition, details, or physical exertion. It was as if we floated in a nebulous world or dimension without time, causation, or orientation. The gray half-daylight of the vast circular space sobered us somewhat, but we did not go near those cached sledges or look again at poor Gedney and the dog. They have a strange and titanic mausoleum, and I hope the end of this planet will find them still undisturbed. It was while struggling up the colossal spiral incline that we first felt the terrible fatigue and short breath which our race through the thin plateau air had produced. But not even fear of collapse could make us pause before reaching the normal outer realm of sun and sky. There was something vaguely appropriate about our departure from those buried epochs, For as we wound our panting way up the 60-foot cylinder of primal masonry, we glimpsed behind us a continuous procession of heroic sculptures in the dead race's early and undecayed technique. A farewell from the old ones, written 50 million years ago. Finally, scrambling out at the top, we found ourselves on a great mound of tumbled blocks with the curved walls of higher stonework rising westward and the brooding peaks of the great mountains showing beyond the more crumbled structures toward the east. The low Antarctic sun of midnight peered redly from the southern horizon through rifts in the jagged ruins, and the terrible age and deadness of the Nightmare City seemed all the starker by contrast with such relatively known and accustomed things as the features of the polar landscape. The sky above was a churning and opalescent mass of tenuous ice vapors, and the cold clutched at our vitals. Wearily resting the outfit bags to which we had instinctively clung throughout our desperate flight. We rebuttoned our heavy garments for the stumbling climb down the mound and the walk through the aeon-old stone maze to the foothills where our aeroplane waited. Of what had set us fleeing from that darkness of Earth's secret and archaic gulfs, we said nothing at all. In less than a quarter of an hour we had found the steep grade to the foothills, the probable ancient terrace by which we had descended, and could see the dark bulk of our great plain amidst the sparse ruins on the rising slope ahead. Halfway uphill toward our goal, we paused for a momentary breathing spell and turned to look again at the fantastic tangle of incredible stone shapes below us, once more outlined mystically against an unknown west. As we did so, we saw that the sky beyond had lost its morning haziness, the restless ice vapors having moved up to the zenith where their mocking outline seemed on the point of settling into some bizarre pattern which they feared to make quite definite or conclusive. There now lay revealed, on the ultimate white horizon behind the grotesque city, a dim, elven line of pinnacled violet whose needle-pointed heights loomed dreamlike against the beckoning rose color of the western sky. Up toward this shimmering rim sloped the ancient tableland, the depressed course of the bygone river traversing it as an irregular ribbon of shadow. For a second we gasped in admiration of the scene's unearthly cosmic beauty, and then vague horror began to creep into our souls. For this far-violet line could be nothing else than the terrible mountains of the Forbidden Land, highest of Earth's peaks and focus of Earth's evil, harbourers of nameless horrors and archaean secrets, shunned and prayed to by those who feared to carve their meaning, untrodden by any living thing on Earth, but visited by the sinister lightnings and sending strange beams across the plains in the polar night, Beyond doubt, the unknown archetype of that dreaded Kadath in the cold waste beyond abhorrent Lang, whereof primal legends hint evasively. If the sculptured maps and pictures in that pre-human city had told truly, these cryptic violet mountains could not be much less than three hundred miles away. Yet none the less sharply did their dim elfin essence appear above that remote and snowy rim like the serrated edge of a monstrous alien planet about to rise into unaccustomed heavens. Their height, then, must have been tremendous beyond all comparison, carrying them up into tenuous atmospheric strata peopled only by such gaseous wraiths as rash flyers have barely lived to whisper of after unexplainable falls. Looking at them, I thought nervously of certain sculptured hints of what the great bygone river had washed down into the city from their accursed slopes and wondered how much sense and how much folly had lain in the fears of those old ones who carved them so reticently. I recalled how their northerly end must come near the coast at Queen Maryland, where even at that moment Sir Douglas Mawson's expedition was doubtless working less than a thousand miles away, and hoped that no evil fate would give Sir Douglas and his men a glimpse of what might lie beyond the protecting coastal range. Such thoughts formed a measure of my overwrought condition at the time, and Danforth seemed to be even worse. Yet long before we had passed the great star-shaped ruin and reached our plain, our fears had become transferred to the lesser but vast enough range whose recrossing lay ahead of us. From these foothills, the black, ruin-crusted slopes reared up starkly and hideously against the east, again reminding us of those strange Asian paintings of Nicholas Rorick. And when we thought of the frightful amorphous entities that might have pushed their fetidly squirming way even to the topmost hollow pinnacles, we could not face without panic the prospect of again sailing by those suggestive skyward cave mouths where the wind made sounds like an evil musical piping over a wide range. To make matters worse, we saw distinct traces of local mist around several of the summits, as poor Lake must have done when he made that early mistake about volcanism and thought shiveringly of that kindred mist from which we had just escaped. Of that, and of the blasphemous horror-fostering abyss whence all such vapors came. All was well with the plane, and we clumsily hauled on our heavy flying furs. Danforth got the engine started without trouble, and we made a very smooth takeoff over the Nightmare City. Below us, the primal cyclopean masonry spread out as it had done when first we saw it, and we began rising and turning to test the wind for our crossing through the pass. At a very high level, there must have been great disturbance, since the ice-dust clouds of the zenith were doing all sorts of fantastic things, but at 24,000 feet, the height we needed for the pass, we found navigation quite practicable. As we drew close to the jutting peaks, the wind's strange piping again became manifest, and I could see Danforth's hands trembling at the controls rank amateur that I was, I thought at that moment that I might be a better navigator than he in effecting the dangerous crossing between pinnacles, and when I made motions to change seats and take over his duties, he did not protest. I tried to keep all my skill and self-possession about me, and stared at the sector of reddish farther sky betwixt the walls of the pass, resolutely refusing to pay attention to the puffs of mountaintop vapor and wishing that I had wax-stopped ears like Ulysses' men off the Siren's coast to keep that disturbing wind-piping from my consciousness. But Danforth, released from his piloting and keyed up to a dangerous nervous pitch, could not keep quiet. I felt him turning and wriggling about as he looked back at the terrible receding city, ahead at the cave-riddled, cube-barnacled peaks, sidewise at the bleak sea of snowy, rampart-strewn foothills, and upward, at the seething, grotesquely clouded sky. It was then, just as I was trying to steer safely through the pass, that his mad shrieking brought us so close to disaster by shattering my tight hold on myself and causing me to fumble helplessly with the controls for a moment. A second afterward, my resolution triumphed, and we made the crossing safely. Yet, I am afraid that Danforth will never be the same again. I have said that Danforth refused to tell me what final horror made him scream out so insanely, a horror which, I feel sadly sure, is mainly responsible for his present breakdown. We had snatches of shouted conversation above the wind's piping and the engine's buzzing as we reached the safe side of the range and swooped slowly down toward the camp, but that had mostly to do with the pledges of secrecy we had made as we prepared to leave the Nightmare City. Certain things we had agreed were not for people to know and discuss lightly, and I would not speak of them now, but for the need of heading off that Starkweather-Moore expedition, and others at any cost. It is absolutely necessary for the peace and safety of mankind that some of Earth's dark, dead corners and unplumbed depths be let alone, lest sleeping abnormalities wake to resurgent life and blasphemously surviving nightmares squirm and splash out of their black lairs to newer and wider conquests. All that Danforth has ever hinted is that the final horror was a mirage. It was not, he declares, anything connected with the cubes and caves of those echoing, vaporous, wormily honeycombed mountains of madness which we crossed, but a single fantastic demoniac glimpse amongst the churning zenith clouds of what lay back of those other violet westward mountains which the old ones had shunned and feared. It is very probable that the thing was a sheer delusion born of the previous stresses we had passed through and of the actual though unrecognized mirage of the dead transmountain city experienced near Lake's camp the day before. But it was so real to Danforth that he suffers from it still. He has, on rare occasions, whispered disjointed and irresponsible things about the Black Pit, the Carven Rim, the Proto-Shogoths, the windowless solids with five dimensions, the Nameless Cylinder, the Elder Pharos, yogg Sothoth, the Primal White Jelly, the Color Out of Space, the Wings, the Eyes in Darkness, the Moon Ladder, the Original and the Eternal, the Undying, and other bizarre conceptions. But when he is fully himself, he repudiates all this and attributes it to his curious and macabre reading of earlier years. Danforth, indeed, is known to be among the few who have ever dared go completely through that worm-riddled copy of the Necronomicon, kept under lock and key in the college library. The higher sky as we crossed the range was surely vaporous and disturbed enough, and although I did not see the zenith, I can well imagine that its swirls of ice dust may have taken strange forms imagination, knowing how vividly distant scenes can sometimes be reflected, refracted, and magnified by such layers of restless cloud, might easily have supplied the rest. And, of course, Danforth did not hint any of these specific horrors till after his memory had had a chance to draw on his bygone reading. He could never have seen so much in one instantaneous glance. At the time, his shrieks were confined to the repetition of a single mad word of all too obvious source. Take-a-lee-lee. lee And that is the end of the Mountains of Madness. It's done. It's over. It's finished. Uh, that was a trek. Good lord. That's a lot longer than I thought it was. And if I had known that it was going to be that long, I would have spread it out longer. Because, man, these episodes are long. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you all so much for... Everything. Uh, if you tell your friends about the show, like if you put a rating and review on iTunes, if you write about it on your blog, like I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Um, just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, th- that's it. Um, next week, I've got a really special story coming up. I just need to get some paperwork done and sent in, and 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 we'll have it all done and ready to go. Uh, but uh, next week, I'm really excited about the story because it's it's a really good one. It's a really nice weird tale. And it's by a really, really famous person. So, anyway, um, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, I guess I will see you next week. da 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 Here's the bloops. Paradoxically, it was both a less frightful and more frightful odor. Less frightful intrinsically, but infinitely appalling in this place under the known circumstances. Unless, of course, Gedney, for the odor was the plain and familiar one of common petrol, everyday... There are like six dashes in this sentence, and I have no idea how it's supposed to go. For have I not said those horrible peaks were mountains of madness? Yes, Lovecraft, you have said that like twenty times. You've said it like twenty times. You don't need to say it again. It's like frickin' what's his name, Matthew um, uh, Paulini, Christopher Paulini, fricking Christopher Paulini. Who wrote the Aragon books and used the phrase whereupon like three times in like 10 pages. Like in the narrative, not even somebody talking. This is the same story where somebody made a barges. We don't need no stinking barges reference, which is like, what? No. And also the story where the main bad guy is defeated by Aragon, going, think about how evil you've been. And the bad guy goes, oh, I'm so evil and dies. Sorry. Aragon is a dumb series of books. And there are people who are like, oh, but he was only uh, 14 years old when he wrote the books. And I'm like, yeah, it shows. Sorry. I get, it, it, I get set off. All right. We can see Mighty Stone Corridor Cor-, Cor, what? Corbels. That's a word, I guess. Um, look up. What is a corbel? A projection jutting out from a wall to support a structure above it. Hmm. In architecture, a corbel is a structural piece of stone, wood, or metal jutting from a wall to... corners. Oh, so it's like a thing... Okay, it's like... It's like when you see a balcony and there's... Stuff underneath holding it up. That's what a corbel is. You're welcome. We've all learned a new word today. The tower's mouth was no farther from the foothills and our waiting plane then. I have no idea what this sentence is trying to say. Oh, foothills and our waiting plane. Okay, that's all one phrase. Okay, geez, man, can I get some commas in here, please? And leave only such an added sensitiveness that memory rains, it's not rain spires. There's a a dash in the middle of it because it goes down to the next line and it looks like it says rain spires. But it's not, it re-inspires.